0: The story I am about to tell you is true. It's about an abduction and murder that occurred in 1989 in Lake City, Florida. I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, and I'll speak with people familiar with the victim and certain aspects of the case. All the opinions you'll hear from people I interview, as well as my opinions, and what I feel may have occurred, are just that. It's up to you to decide who and what you find credible. In the end, facts are what matter when determining guilt or innocence, and everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law.
1: Dear Mrs. Grant, In my last letter to you, I related that we had developed a possible suspect from the New York area. The suspect in question will not talk with investigators from Florida about any cases. The truck that he used in one of the Florida abductions has not been located. The truck that the suspect was using at the time of his arrest did not contain evidence of any other crimes. I've recently been in contact with two retired FBI agents who teach homicide investigation and are experts in the field of homicides and profiling dangerous criminals. The two agents advised that they believe that the person who committed this crime was just there to commit a robbery and that, due to your daughter resisting, caused a violent confrontation. The subjects further advised that they believe that the person who did this crime was one or two young white males between 17 and 21 years of age. Although we have no definite leads, we are still actively working this investigation and are following any and all leads that come about. I apologize for not being able to call you on the phone, but due to the new telephone system that we have installed, We have no phones that will call out of the United States. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to call or write me. Sincerely, Sergeant Randall Roberts. Sergeant Roberts
0: did eventually get to speak with Raymond Muscone. About four months after he wrote this letter, he and his captain visited the Westchester County Jail in Yonkers, New York, to interview him. During this interview, Moscone said that he had been in the Lake City area several times and owned land in Suwannee County in 1983 or 84. It was 100 acres in White Springs near 129, according to him. He denied knowing Darlene or her father or any knowledge of the abduction of the store clerk in Flagler Beach. He said he had nothing to do with Darlene's murder. Moscone said that when he escaped from the New River Correctional Institute, he left Florida within two weeks, and he went to Poughkeepsie to stay with family friends. Moscone hedged, and he said he wouldn't name the people who could verify his whereabouts until he had a chance to speak with them. But later, when the investigator tried to follow up, Moscone basically toyed with them, saying that he thought the investigator was just joking about him providing alibis in the form of notarized statements. They got nothing when they spoke with Moscone nor would they ever get anything in the way of evidence to connect him with Darlene's abduction and murder, or any of those other women. The vehicle that he was driving at the time didn't match any witness description of vehicles around either crime scene, nor is there any latent print or other evidence that ties him to the scene. Moscone was eventually a dead end. The thing that jumped out at me from this letter, though, was the conclusion that the retired FBI agents came up with as far as their profiling of the perpetrators. Quote, The two agents advised that they believe that the person who committed this crime was just there to commit a robbery and that due to your daughter resisting caused a violent confrontation. The subjects further advised that they believe that the person who did this crime was one or two young white males between 17 and 21 years of age. I first want to note that profiling it's really more of an art than a science, even with the wealth of information documented out there to aid criminal profilers. I say this because I've read profile reports that turned out to be incorrect, and I think it's safe to say that a profile is only as good as the person or persons compiling the profile and the information they use in its development. That said, the only suspects that have been associated with Darlene Messer's case, who matched that FBI profile description, are Rob and Charlie our two young gentlemen who were arrested outside Darlene's store with weapons nine days before she was killed, looking to the arresting officer like they were about to rob the place. Two young men who were, for some unknown reason, at Darlene's store nine days earlier, about an hour away from their usual stomping grounds. Two young men who had been driving a vehicle that very closely matched the description of the vehicle seen by the customers from Georgia that night, the night that Darlene was killed, and had almost backed into that vehicle when they saw it pulling into a spot farthest from the window where they wouldn't be seen by the clerk two to four minutes before the store alarm went off. Two young men who already knew Darlene from the Oyster Shack because they had worked with her there, too. Two young men who already had criminal histories. Rob and Charlie. I would later learn from someone who worked at the Oyster Shack that Roger's middle name was Charles, and that's why everyone called him Charlie. Rob and Charlie sounds, and they even looked back then, like a couple of kids from a stoner flick. Except in their case, they were known to drive around town drunk with weapons in the car, and do things like yell obscenities at passersby. These two also committed a fair amount of criminal activity together. It's not shocking to me that FBI agents doing an informal profile of Darlene's crime would come to the conclusion that it was done by a couple of young punks. Young punks are generally sloppy criminals. They don't think things through. They're impulsive. They're messy. They get caught. Usually. And that crime scene at the Suwanee Swifty? It was messy. It's also no surprise that while up north visiting Raymond Moscone, the investigators on this case visited Charlie's stomping grounds. You see, he had moved from Florida to Connecticut sometime after Darlene's murder. The New Britain Police Department assisted the investigators and gave them a phone number that they had associated with him. And Charlie answered. He told them he was busy. He said he had something to do, and it would be about an hour before he could meet with them. So they agreed upon a time. And when the officers showed up at the address he had given them, which was actually his aunt's house, they were informed by her that Charlie had fled. So police talked his aunt into contacting Charlie and asking him to come and speak with them. She went to a payphone, and she spoke with Charlie for about 20 minutes, and then returned to her house. She told police that he refused to meet with them. She said that when she spoke with him, he was at his girlfriend's house, but he had probably left there by now. With nothing more that they could do, the officers went to the New Britain Police Department and spoke with several of their investigators in the Criminal Investigation Division. When they tried to call Charlie back, there was no answer. At that point, they discussed getting a current violation of probation warrant extradition changed to Nationwide, and the investigators assisting them said that when they did, it would be faxed to them. With that, the officers returned to Florida. Rob and Charlie. I speak of them as a pair because of the many police reports I have outlining the criminal shenanigans of this dynamic duo. Let's see if I can give you a timeline of these crimes within the context of the events you've already learned. April of 1988 was the Oyster Shack incident when Darlene was working for a relative of Charlie's and informed her boss of an in-house theft scheme. I have no way of knowing if either Rob or Charlie were in on that scheme, but they were certainly known to all the people involved, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that when Darlene had called the police and cut off the supply of beer and food items being stolen from that business, Rob and Charlie had been affected as well. Four months after the Oyster Shack incident, Rob and Charlie were arrested in August of 1988. At 11.32 p.m., police stopped a black 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass as the vehicle left the parking lot near a game room in Middleburg, Florida. They had received information that the almost 16-year-old Charlie would be driving around in his parents' vehicle with a revolver. Rob was in the passenger seat. He was 22 at the time. Rob's brother Glenn was in the back seat. He was 18. Charlie only had his restricted driver's license, yet it was well known that he drove around town with his father's guns and got drunk with his friends. Multiple incident reports can attest to that fact, and if this sounds eerily similar to the event that would occur a year later, that's because the circumstances are very similar. Charlie is driving his parents' car with his father's weapons, and he and his friends are drunk. I would insert a discussion about irresponsible adults and their lack of accountability regarding their firearms, but I don't care to have a stroke today, and that conversation makes me irritated enough that a stroke is possible. Let's just say there were some irresponsible gun owners in the mix and call it a day. You know what? Maybe I will partake of a quick vent. People, lock up your damn weapons. If your kid gets a hold of them in my perfect utopia, you would be arrested for that. And if it happens twice in a year, which it did in this case, you would be in jail, cooling your heels a real long time, suffering my perfect utopia in your cell, bedded next to Bubba the Love Sponge, an inmate who smells like a sausage and onion sub and has an affinity for idiot, irresponsible adults who allow their kids to gain access to their weapons and drive around drunk with them. We are too lax with irresponsible gun owners in this country. We always have been, and the 1980s were no exception. Charlie Boy here is regularly known to be driving around town as far back as 15 years old, in his parents' vehicles, with weapons, while drunk and probably high, given that Pop was removed from one of those vehicles in at least one event. So here he is with his partner in crime, a whole year before Darlene Messer is murdered, and a whole year before Darlene calls the cops to her store parking lot because they are drunk and, according to the report, acting suspiciously. It still bothers me that nowhere in the report that I received does it note that Darlene knew these two guys, and it includes no narrative at all about what she saw that she found so suspicious in the first place. Maybe those documents were held back from me. I can see that happening if these guys are still viable suspects today, and I think that they are, given that I have no current DNA testing results to rule them out, like I do with Joe and T. Anyway, back to this time. The time a year earlier, when they are arrested near a local game room in Middleburg, Florida, with a 38 caliber handgun located in the center console, a case of beer in the back next to Glenn, and Rob, just like before, has no ID to offer when cops ask for it, and that's probably because he had outstanding warrants for other criminal issues. The youngest of them, Charlie, always seemed to be the driver in these escapades, at least during all the incidents that I've studied. Maybe he was the only one with access to wheels, or maybe these little criminals knew that the minor would get a lesser sentence than they would if they got stopped so they figured they'd let him take the fall for anything that happened to occur. Seventeen beers were recovered from the back seat, four of them full, and thirteen empty. Charlie was arrested for carrying a concealed firearm, possession of alcohol by a minor, and a restricted driver's license violation. Again, the vehicle was towed. Again, the weapon was confiscated. And again, I'm assuming the gun owner had to take a trip up to the local police department to retrieve his weapon. Just out of curiosity, how many times does this sort of thing have to happen before, as an adult, you decide to secure your weapons properly? How many times would you head down to the local PD to pick up weapons that your kid was rolling around town with while drunk before you decide that maybe this time is one too many? Maybe after the second time? I'm hoping, anyway. Which would have been the day that Darlene's body was found? and Charlie's dad went up to the police department to retrieve the shotgun and handgun that the miner was still allowed access to after the incident I just outlined. Not to put too fine a point on it, but in the span of a year, this miner Charlie, had two gun charges and two drunk driving charges, charges against his license, and apparently, conveniently, he's home with his father and Rob the night that Darlene was murdered, not in jail where he should be, but allegedly home with his dad and Rob enjoying a nice evening before they all got to bed around 12.30. Conveniently. Allegedly. If you believe that alibi, which I'm not inclined to do. Not without any proof. Because nobody in this scenario has the scent of responsibility and truthfulness wafting about their person like magnolia blossoms on a warm summer breeze. Rob and Charlie's M.O. includes generally being out all hours of the night, Every one of these reports show that these boys are out after midnight, sometimes well after 2 or 3 a.m., so I'm not inclined to believe that they were hanging out with Dad on this one specific night, and not out drinking and carousing, as was their normal routine. These weren't staying-at-home-hanging-out-with-Dad kind of boys, if you catch my drift. Now, in our timeline involving Robin, Charlie's excellent crime adventures, we have discussed similar crimes before Darlene was murdered. And now I want to mention a crime that occurred after Darlene was murdered because it's also very telling.
1: Key for Ruby Tuesday, please. Yeah, because I don't... It. got it before, i year. So.
0: Saturday, November 25th, 1989. Two months after Darlene's murder. The Rolling Stones set list that night began with Start Me Up, it segwayed into bitch, and then sailed right into sad, sad, sad. It was an exciting night for Rolling Stones fans. Most of them, anyway. For two of them, it wouldn't be such a glowing memory. A couple with tickets to the show were robbed by two assailants, who were armed with an axe and a bat, about 14 miles from where the festivities would take place that night, at Jacksonville's Gator Bowl. 14 miles away in a residential area on a street called Pirate's Court. And not, let's say, while they were walking from their vehicle to the arena. Tickets clutched in their hands as they hurried excitedly toward the venue. No, this robbery occurred elsewhere, indicating that the perpetrators had run into the victims elsewhere and decided to target them. Did they know that they had Rolling Stones tickets and that's why they were robbed? Or was that just a convenient bonus? I will say that these perpetrators were not very bright. Because after stealing those tickets, while armed with a bat and an axe like a couple of B-list actors straight out of a shitty zombie movie, Rob and Charlie, yeah, you guessed it, headed to the Gator Bowl intent on taking in the show. They were apprehended near the concert venue by off-duty officers. Rob and Charlie didn't have guns that night to commit the robbery like they had multiple times before when they'd been arrested. This time, they were caught with an axe and a bat. And that might be because the weapons they were used to carrying had already been confiscated by police, and they didn't have access to them by that point, which was two months after Darlene's murder. What happens to perpetrators who clearly aren't going to quit perpetrating when their weapons of choice are suddenly unavailable to them? Well, they arm themselves with new weapons, like a bat or an axe, or a hammer. You can take away their toys, but that doesn't remove the criminal intent or activity. Criminals evolve to suit their needs. Hypothetically, if Robin and Charlie didn't have a gun on a night that they wanted to rob a convenience store, it's clear based on their actions that they weren't opposed to using other means by which they could, quote, unlawfully by force, violence, assault, put in fear, and take money or other property, committing such with a deadly weapon. That's a line from Rob's sentencing documents for that bat-slash-axe crime. And boy howdy did someone shit the bed on this one. Charlie was still a minor at the time, so I couldn't find out how he was charged in this case, which again happened after the event, nine days before Darlene was murdered, and where he and Rob were arrested drunk with weapons, presumably about to rob a store. I do, however, have Rob's sentencing papers for the November 1989 axe-slash-bat-wielding robbery. The court papers say, quote, it appearing to the satisfaction of the court that you are not likely, again, to engage in a criminal course of conduct and that the ends of justice and the welfare of society do not require that you should presently be adjudged guilty and suffer the penalty authorized by law. Really? I find myself wondering who these guys had to go to bat for them, given their criminal histories to that point, which included gun charges. Rob was sentenced on December 8, 1989, and was allowed to plead nolo contendere to aggravated battery, and was sentenced to $220 in court costs, 30 days in jail, 14 of which were credited as time served, and 100 hours of community service. So he'd be out by Christmas. Nolo Contendre is a plea whereby the defendant basically declines to admit or dispute his or her guilt. And I'd like to give a big sarcastic shout-out to the Honorable Judge John D. Southwood and Assistant State Attorney John Moran for their stellar work here, because as it happens, Rob would be in jail again by February of the following year, two months later. And both Rob and Charlie would continue to offend. They would also both continue to be looked at as suspects in Darlene Messer's homicide case, well into 1991. I think one can extrapolate from this that police weren't taking the alibi given by Charlie's father as gospel, because not only did the investigation follow Charlie out of the state to Connecticut, where he fled after his last arrest, but it followed Rob as well. Charlie would go on to have another violent offense in 1999, an arrest for second-degree assault, among other offenses. In the police file that I was sent from my records request I have a list of items to be checked and rechecked for these gentlemen which includes a note to repolygraph one or both of them check what type of pain reliever they used what type of cigarettes they smoked at the time of the abduction and their waist and shoe sizes waist sizes had to do with the belt left at the scene the pain reliever question may have had to do with what appears to be a BC powder packet laying on the counter near the register as if just purchased or about to be purchased at the crime scene. I noted that there was also a cellophane wrapper with a red strip that matches the ones on the BC powders, shown in the crime scene images in a picture of the ashtray in front of the register checkout area. A potato chip bag was also listed as having been taken into evidence, and that's all I know about that, so I can't speculate much farther as to why. Unless maybe police thought that one of the perpetrators stood inside the store having a snack and chatting up Darlene just before he robbed her. It's never mentioned in the report again. The note about re-polygraphing doesn't say which or both men, although I do have some documentation on both of them. At the end of October 1990, over a year after Darlene's murder, Rob was answering questions that were being asked by a polygrapher. I don't have the results of polygraphs taken by any of the suspects but I do have a list of questions that Rob was asked. I don't have the result of the answers that he gave other than a plus or a minus next to each question, but because I'm not sure that's what they indicate, I'm only going to discuss the questions that were asked. I think that in and of itself is interesting. I don't know if this was his first or subsequent test or even if he was ever repolygraphed after this, He was certainly under no obligation to be tested at all, and he obviously sat down of his own free will. I want to add here that taking or not taking a polygraph when asked by law enforcement is of very little value, because I think by now we have all seen both innocent and guilty men and women agree to take polygraphs. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Chris Watts, the monster who recently killed his wife and two children. He agreed to take a polygraph. He sat right down with him and lied his ass off. Some of these guys think that they are the smartest person in the room, so they figure they can beat the test. That's good. Let them keep thinking that. We've also seen guilty people pass polygraphs, and innocent people fail them. So my personal feelings about polygraphs are that they are fairly worthless, other than maybe being a tool for police to get a possible perpetrator into a situation that makes him uncomfortable and see how he or she reacts. But see, that also gets innocent people into the same bind and it often leads to false confessions. So, I would say that the risk outweighs the benefit with polygraphs, and if I were a cop, I probably wouldn't even use them. There is little to no investigative value in them, regardless of how good the polygrapher is. You can't rule out a suspect who passes a test, nor can you convict someone who fails with one. More than anything, it's a tool that can muddy the water for an investigator that puts too much credence in them. Yet, In the example I gave earlier, Chris Watts did end up digging himself a Chris-sized hole because of that polygraph. Not just the polygraph, but because of how the polygrapher, a quiet, no-nonsense woman, told him afterward with a voice that seemed to exude concern that she knew he'd been deceptive and she felt like he wanted to get it off his chest. He then decided to blame his dead wife for killing her kids, and he said that's why he killed her. In the end, the truth was learned. But being in that room, with his adrenaline pumping, and in the company of people who were decidedly smarter than he, led to his demise. I guess you could consider that a polygraph win, but to my mind, that wasn't necessarily the polygraph that did that. She could have had him hooked up to a blood pressure cuff and been watching YouTube and gotten the same result. She could have lied and said she'd seen deception on her computer screen as she watched a cute animal video, and it would have likely turned out the exact same way. It's a cat and mouse game, really, and the most savvy generally wins, regardless of guilt or innocence. So since polygraphs were used in Darlene's case, I'm going to cover them for the purposes of seeing the types of questions that they were asking. All I have on Charlie regarding a polygraph are two pages, and no questions. The first page is titled Request for Polygraph Examinations and it gives a date and time of examination as July 16, 1991, at 8.30 a.m. What this date shows us is that his father's alibi was not being taken as a fact, because this is a couple years after Charlie's dad gave that alibi. All I can say about that is I hope his father was truthful when he gave it. It's also interesting what the page lists as responsibilities of the investigator— including the date to contact the person to confirm the appointment, how to report if the polygraph is refused, how the investigator is to arrange a conference with the polygrapher with case folder in hand to formulate questions 15 minutes prior to the appointment time, and to advise if the subject has had any medical problems that would result in the need for a doctor's release. It also notes that they should advise the subject of the test to get a good night's sleep beforehand. This page is signed by Sergeant Roberts. The second page is signed by Roger, aka Charlie. It's a list of his Miranda rights which he signed, as well as a waiver of those rights which he also signed, and it's dated June 20, 1991 at 1:45 1 p.m. The test took place at the Jacksonville Detention Center, which is apparently where Charlie was incarcerated at the time. But I have no further information on Charlie's test. I didn't get a list of questions that he was asked, like I did with Rob. Next, we'll go over a list of questions that Rob's polygrapher may have asked. The questions are typed and there are handwritten notes throughout, with words crossed out and changed and apparent answers given. There are three pages. The first two more personal or general about him and the questions on the last page directly relate to Darlene's murder. He is asked where he's born, his date of birth, if his parents are living, how he gets along with each of them, who raised him, how many siblings, if he has a girlfriend, if he supports himself or if he has help, and what his job is. As far as his job, he answered that he set up mobile homes and his take home was 250 or 300 a week. He was asked about his schooling and then how many times that he had been arrested. He answered four or five, two as a juvenile, and the aggravated assault in November of 89 and robbery are noted. They asked about the last medication that he took and his answer was painkillers about four months prior. They asked him how much he had drunk in the past 24 hours and he said two beers. The notes also indicate the words weekends and sometimes a lot regarding the drinking. He was asked who he owed money to and there are two notations. One is listed as McDuff for $3,200 and the other is 90 for probation. It's noted that he was going to the National Training Center learning to be a truck driver. Hunting, motorcycling, and the outdoors were listed as hobbies or pastimes. To the question of his greatest ambition, financially set is the response noted. When asked the worst thing to ever happen to you, the answer is this here. Under the question ever falsely accused, the answer was yes. Under the question anything bothering you, the answer noted is this and not having his own place when asked how he feels toward the polygraph he answers not comfortable and then when they ask why he's taking the examination the answer jotted down was to get this cleared up then they get to the questions specific to Darlene Messer's murder do you know for sure who murdered Darlene Messer did you murder Darlene Messer Did you help anyone abduct Darlene Messer? And on that question, there's an interesting couple of words. Next to the word anyone, two names were written and then crossed out. The first name appears to be Raj, R O G, which I take to mean Roger, aka Charlie. Then there's a second name which appears to begin with an M, although it looks to have been scribbled out shortly after whoever wrote it began to write the second name down. Another question? Right now, can you take me to the weapon used to murder Darlene Messer? There are a couple questions thrown in about telling lies. And then the final question on the page is, Did you tell the entire truth as to what you know about the murder of Darlene Messer? i tell you that I wish I had the results of the polygraphs to share with you. But as I've explained, I don't personally think they carry a lot of weight. So it would be more out of curiosity than anything else. I wouldn't be able to rule him or anyone else in or out based on the results of any amount of polygraph testing. I generally think that the best most effective cases aren't just made with DNA or a smoking gun or if someone passes or fails a polygraph. Cases are built of many parts and they tell a story bit by bit, mostly of circumstantial evidence that's sewn together by a masterful prosecutor and supported by physical evidence. For my part, what I can do is outline every bit of information that I get and hope that during the process an image emerges that helps you, the listener, see a case from the perspective of what we know to be true and apply common sense. My hope is that people with valuable information about the case hear what I outline and it jogs a memory or an understanding that they might actually have something of value and that that person takes that information to police. Sometimes witnesses don't even know what they have, and those witnesses are often the people close to perpetrators who may have seen or heard things, but don't understand how they relate to a case, and if they have any information about it at all. I admit that it's hard to help develop an image for you when the paints that I'm working with to create that image are the scribbled notes of investigators and decades-old reports, but every little bit helps to create that image nonetheless. In Darlene Messer's case, we have actual images to start with, and those are the crime scene photos. An apparent struggle, the items on the ground, the state of the store, all of it tells a story. I tend to rule out Joe and T because I'm told that DNA ruled them out. And my perception of this case is that Darlene's crime scene at the store doesn't look like the scene of a seasoned robber. They generally tend to get in and out pretty quick. Most robberies don't even end with a dead person. And they certainly don't end with an abducted person, they just don't. Also, there were zero evidence or witnesses to put Joe and T at that scene. Nothing that could associate them with that store in the appropriate time frame. While that sighting around Price Creek Road is interesting, I don't think that we can even say it was related to Darlene's case. It could just as easily have been kids screwing around that night. And that scream that only one of the witnesses said that she heard have just as easily been the screeching of tires that the other witness mentioned in addition i'm not sure that i buy that the struggle we see in those crime scene photos is even about darlene having seen too much or ripping off someone's mask in fact i don't see darlene ripping off a mask if someone is holding a gun in the first place and that's what joe used in his prior robberies i don't think you start ripping masks off of armed perpetrators unless you're asking for a bullet in the face immediately thereafter even if they've got other weapons, if you're close enough to rip masks off and they've got a weapon, you're close enough for them to hit you. The only possible explanation I could come up with for Darlene doing that was if she thought the blackmail perpetrator robbing her was Linwood, the Peeping Tom, that she had allegedly had problems with. And in that case, she would have to believe he would never shoot her in the first place. I suppose that that's an argument that could be made, but it's flimsy and it doesn't account for the fact that the only black males associated with this case have already been ruled out via DNA. I think that the final register receipt indicates that the perpetrator or perpetrators walked right up and went to purchase something and that after that item was rung up, as soon as the drawer popped open, Darlene knew she had a problem because the silent alarm was engaged. Whether it was she that engaged it by pulling that 20 out, which triggered the alarm, or it was the perpetrator who lunged over the counter and started grabbing money when the drawer popped open. One thing I want to point out is that there is no record of a no sale after that last sale, number 505. So whatever it was had to begin once the drawer popped open on that final sale. That was the moment that this started. But it's almost certain that a perpetrator who walked in and pretended at least at the outset to be a customer wouldn't have been wearing anything over his face. If you walk in with a nylon stocking or a mask on your face, the clerk probably is not going through the formality of ringing up your 38-cent item. I think we can extrapolate from that receipt and the times on it that the perpetrator or perpetrators were not wearing masks. Also, I wanna note that in the close-up images of the register that show the till and the BC powder on the counter, you can see ones in the one slot. It looks like fives and tens are empty, but the end arm on the slot all the way to the far left is down, yet the bill in that slot is turned sideways, not slid in long ways like normal. I think the most likely scenario is that it was up at some point and snapped back down, explaining the bill that is trapped beneath it sideways. Otherwise, a sideways bill can't be explained if the armed 20 was just yanked out without popping that arm up. Now here's a question for you. If robbery was indeed the motive, why was Darlene abducted at all? Why didn't they just kill her right there? It's much more likely that a genuine robber with that intent, if something spooked him, would just kill her and leave the body, not bring her with him. Perpetrators generally want to distance themselves from their crime. That's just a normal reaction. They don't want to drag live evidence of their being at a scene along with them, kicking and screaming. Even dumb young perpetrators intent on robbing a store and doing it badly would be ill-advised to drag the store clerk with them. What could they possibly be thinking? Would they be thinking that they could somehow bring her along, talk her out of IDing them and then drop her somewhere? If that were the case, what kind of perpetrator would do that? A stranger or someone known to the victim? Dragging the crime victim along with you generally tends to indicate the perpetrator has more in store for you after that point. And generally that more isn't anything good. If robbery was the motive, why was money left in the register? with most of it dropped throughout the store and into the parking lot. It appears that they dropped as much as they got. Perhaps the motive wasn't robbery at all. Perhaps the motive was personal. Maybe the robbery was an afterthought or even a clumsy way of staging the scene. Based on what we know about the ME report, the perpetrator or perpetrators did not appear to have a gun because Darlene wasn't killed with one. I'm still not comfortable completely ruling out them having a gun because we have that one report that says there was a bullet hole in the back of her neck and I have not had anyone say to me no the medical examiner made a mistake and they were able to get her out of that store so we have to at least entertain the possibility that they had one but she certainly wasn't killed by one. But if they were robbing her and they didn't have a gun what in the hell are they robbing her with? Because if they were robbing her with a gun, wouldn't you expect them to kill her with that? Another thing that we could throw into the mix as possible consideration is that one of them did have a gun and that was used to scare and control her, but another of them had a different weapon and that weapon would have been what was eventually used to kill her. Darlene obviously fought back in some way, but the area behind the register throws off mixed signals. The items on the floor tend to indicate having been pushed from the customer side into the cashier bay area. The register is hanging over the edge on the cashier side. Most of the items on the floor were containers on the counter within reach of the customer side, and the rolling paper boxes could have fallen when the register went down because they were located behind and next to it. But if the meat of that struggle, if you will, occurred right there where the mess is, why aren't those boxes trampled over and flat? They aren't. They don't appear to have been stepped on at all, yet they're right there on the floor with the gum and the lighters and all that other stuff. However, I did notice that that carpet on the floor in the cashier bay, where all that junk is, appears to have been lifted somehow. Some of the gum and a couple items appear to be beneath it, as if maybe a shoe caught the edge of that rug and jostled it up just a little bit at some point. And what about that belt that's lying right there on the floor The belt seems to suggest that the perpetrator or perpetrators Removed his belt in an effort to either restrain or kill her with Based on that small-sized hole in the loop that it was left in It seems to me more like it was used to try to restrain her But it slipped off somehow Surely he didn't enter with it dangling from his arm Or slung over his shoulder, did he? For the life of me, I cannot figure out what else it would possibly have been used for And why would he just leave it there? that item clearly brought into the scene something that could be traced back to them. And here's another thing. Why didn't Darlene go for the gun in her purse? It was right there. Very close to the belt, in fact. If she'd been dragged out from behind that register, they'd have to drag her right past that purse. And if you're being dragged right by a purse and your assailant or assailants don't have a gun, but they have something less than that, I think you might try your luck reaching for the better weapon. Maybe she didn't have time once she realized the threat. Maybe it all happened so fast, she didn't even think of it. Maybe they had her arms pinned and she couldn't. Who knows? Fear has a way of affecting your reactions. The bulk of what appears to be a struggle happened at the end of the cashier bay, on the way out of it near the coolers, where a fan on a shelf was toppled and a pallet of empty glass soda bottles for return showed signs of being banged into. There's a kitchen-sized trash can that appears upside down against the coolers that almost looks like it was thrown in that direction or dragged with its contents spilling out beneath it. I agree with the profilers that the trail of cash and lighters outside the building indicates young, sloppy criminals. Seasoned robbers tend to get in and out and generally don't stop to grab a handful of lighters which don't even make it out to the getaway vehicle because whatever's happening in the process is causing the little money that they got to drop like a trail of breadcrumbs along with the lighters, leading directly to where they likely parked their vehicle. If there was only one perpetrator, that might explain the sloppiness. He couldn't deal with the belt and Darlene and grabbing the stuff. But what type of perpetrator comes alone to rob a store without a gun and expects to effectively control the clerk? You'd have to be a pretty imposing figure to do that, I'd think, physically big, wielding a scary weapon. If robbery wasn't the motive and abduction was, something more personal, let's say. It's absurd as a single perpetrator theory. Who did this guy think he was that he could get her out of the store himself without a gun and also manage to stage a robbery with only two hands? One of those hands clearly holding a weapon If the intent of this crime was a robbery, it was messy, unsuccessful, and committed by a perpetrator or perpetrators who didn't seem to understand how abducting the clerk might actually make their initial intent of getting away with robbery much more difficult. Maybe they weren't thinking at all. Remember, the manager I spoke with mentioned drugs when we discussed the lighters, and that is certainly a possibility to consider. When drugs or alcohol are involved, it's often impossible to understand why a perpetrator did what he did, other than the fact that he was under the influence. Now the second crime scene, the bridge, it also tells a story. The amount of blood on that bridge indicates to me that some of her attack happened there. If you take into account the puddle of car fluid and believe that it was from the suspect's car, that lends to the idea that the car sat there for at least enough time to drip out a puddle onto the cement that was there and obvious two days later. Then we have the cigarette butts, two different brands, which appear at least to my untrained eye like they were dropped after the blood was deposited. And that piece of grass with the blood separate from the blood spots. My original thought was that her body came into contact with a grassy area. Maybe even the grassy area near the bridge on either side prior to ending up on the side of the bridge. Or maybe it was the perpetrator's shoes that came in contact with the grass and they transferred a piece of bloody grass but that would still indicate some injury prior to their arrival at that spot. Which brings me to one possible theory and that theory starts with that letter written by Columbia County Sheriff Tom Trammell. "Quote: Preliminary investigation appears that the suspect or suspects left the store, headed towards Stark, Florida, and turned around at the Swift Creek Bridge and got into the returning lane back towards Lake City And stopped on top of the bridge and threw the victim into the water from the top of the bridge. I assume that they knew the vehicle had turned around at the bridge because the blood was on the opposite side of the road. They'd have to be traveling if they had come from the Suwannee Swifty store. And that makes sense. They would have fled the store and gone straight down State Road 100 about 13 miles and been in the right lane. And from that direction, the blood was on the other side. Okay, I'll bite. Why did they turn around? You're fleeing a crime scene with someone in your car that you just abducted. Why would you turn back around and head in the direction that you had just come from? What would have caused them to do that if they are hauling ass down the road away from the store they just robbed with the clerk now in their vehicle? Why did they turn around and end up facing the other way on the Swift Creek Bridge? Did Darlene manage to jump out of the car and start running? So they had to turn around and grab her? That's one possible explanation. Was that spot on the bridge the moment where her assailant or assailants caught her and began angrily beating her with that blunt object until she was unconscious, and then they tossed her over the edge? Remember that we have blood from that bridge that came back with two contributors, one that matches Darlene and another male suspect. If there was any altercation on that bridge, if Darlene had jumped out, And someone had to jump out after her and maybe even got injured in the process that might explain two contributors one evidence report notes that glass fragments were taken from that scene and another notation on a to-do list mentioned asking a witness about the possibility of a broken windshield or glass so i guess there's a possibility that there was a violent altercation that occurred right there on that bridge i truly can't think of any other explanation with the facts that we have for why the car would have turned around there, unless they had passed over that bridge, and then decided it would be the perfect place to dispose of her after beating her senseless, right there on top of it. But that water beneath the bridge, it's shallow. In the dark, they might not even see it. It's not the kind of bridge where you would toss a body over and expect it to float down a river. There isn't any of that. It's basically a very shallow, swampy creek. A bridge over a small creek on the road seems like an odd place to stop a car intentionally and dump a body, even if it was dark and not a very busy road. There are plenty of places on the way from the Suwanee Swifty store before and after that bridge to pull over and drag Darlene out of the car and into a wooded area or a ditch on the side of the road. So why would they stop at the one place where you'd have to drag her out of the car, lift her body up and over the side of a cement railing? It's certainly more work, given that there are ditches and smaller roads off of County Road 100 all up and down that area. Another thing to think about, the blood being on that bridge indicates that she may not have been injured prior to then. It's less likely that they beat her to death or unconscious in the car and then stopped on that bridge, let her lay on the ground just long enough to bleed all over that area, and then dump her over. It's more likely that the brunt of that altercation happened right there on that bridge. What if they had taken her somewhere near that bridge, past it maybe, to do something to her, and she got away somehow, managed to get that far back, running in the other direction before they caught up with her? It is hard to see her jumping out of a moving vehicle that was presumably moving pretty fast going down that road. And then we need to look at where in the car she is. She may or may not have had access to a door handle. Let's assume she's in that 1976 or 77 Pontiac Grand Prix. That's a two-door and it's a boat of a car. Did they take the time at the Suwannee Swifty to pull up one of the front seats and shove her into the back where she would then have no access at all to jumping out? Or did they just shove her into the front seat with them? If it was only one perpetrator being in the front seat would have given her access to a door. If there were two perpetrators, she may have been shoved between them into the front seats with still no access to a door to make a quick getaway anywhere along the road. And then there's the trunk. The trunk on the Pontiac Grand Prix is huge by today's standards. They could have shoved her in there, I guess, but I can't see her escaping once inside. I don't think we can know if the bridge was where the assault began or just where it ended up, but given the blood there on that bridge, it does appear to me that stopping right there on that bridge was intentional. Either they chose to and the reasoning for that is unclear, or they had to. Listeners, if you can think of anything else that makes sense, I encourage you to drop me a line on the Down and Away Facebook page. I would love to hear your thoughts. Next week, the final episode of Season 8. Stay tuned.